my wife Angela whispered. Yeah, what time do you think it is? was my sleepy reply. I don't know. The fire's out. It must be close to morning. This conversation starts off what's a little bit of an embarrassing personal story. One fall weekend over 30 years ago, before we had children, my wife and I went deer hunting in the Cascade Mountains about 75 miles away from our home. We spent the chilly night camping by beautiful Timpanogos Lake. We were the only two people in the whole campground. It was really dark and quiet when both of us found ourselves awake and anticipating getting to the logging unit where we were going to go hunt that morning. The plan was to be there and quietly in place an hour before the sun was set to rise at about 6.45 a.m. We would need to be up by 5.30 in order to make it on time, but there was a problem. This was in the days before cell phones were common, and I had forgotten to bring any sort of timekeeping machine, like an alarm clock or even my watch. To compound our chrono challenge, the clock in my 1976 Ford Bronco was broken. We couldn't risk being late, so Angela and I got up, ate a couple of food bars, and drove about 15 minutes to the logging unit, hoping it would contain our four-legged prize. When we got there, it was still pitch black, so we waited for the sky to lighten a little bit so we could make our way to our stand. There, we would wait for a big buck to present itself. Watching the eastern sky, there was no hint of illumination on the horizon. The radio in the Bronco did work. I attempted to tune in a radio station to try and find out what time it was. The pulsating voices that you hear on distant AM radio stations as their signal fades in and out sound the creepiest when you're in the middle of the woods in total darkness. Because radio stations cut their power at a certain hour in the evening and something to do with the way radio waves travel around and bounce off the ionosphere at night, I couldn't bring any of the familiar stations I knew about. However, I finally found a station in another state and in a different time zone that didn't completely fade away. We listened and waited for the station to give the time. Just after the news, we heard the announcer say it was 2.30 a.m., Mountain Time. That meant it was only 1.30 a.m. Pacific Time. We were over four hours early. Well, feeling really stupid and tired, we drove back to our camp and went to sleep, hoping it would be closer to daylight when we woke up the next time. It was. So how did we do hunting? Did I mention how beautiful Timpanogos Lake is? That, and the company of my wife, was what made the whole trip worthwhile. If you're not one that approves of hunting... Take comfort in knowing that I've experienced very little success over the years at it. Of course, we laughed about it then, and we still do now. But what happened during that trip is that my young wife and I were woefully unprepared and uninformed. We lacked essential information that left both of us stumbling around in the dark and literally lost in time. We had no point of reference to the time other than it was dark and later than when we had fallen asleep. As far as time went, we were completely disoriented. We were unprepared and missing information. All of it could have been prevented. In preparing for the trip, I failed to ask some simple questions like, Did you pack the alarm clock? Or, Have you seen my watch? Unlike me, in order to satisfy their curiosity and prepare both themselves 
and future followers of Jesus, the disciples asked their master some critical questions. Although Jesus provided more information than he was asked for, it's these questions that Jesus answers and are the basis of the Olivet Discourse. Before I go on, I'd like to encourage you to read all three accounts of the Olivet Discourse. They're found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. In a later episode, I'll talk about why chapter 25 belongs in the Olivet Discourse, where some don't include it. In Mark, you'll find the talk contained in chapter 13. And in Luke, you can read the Olivet Discourse account in chapter 21, verses 5 through 36. The questions the disciples asked came about, at least in part, from the short conversation which took place just after Jesus and the disciples had left the temple for the day. Remember, in the last podcast, I talked about the following first two verses from Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. He answered them, Do you see all these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, so let's move on. The next thing we read about is the following in Matthew 24, verse 3. This is the Matthew account. And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him alone and said, When will these things occur? What will be the sign of your arrival and presence here and of the completion of the age? That's my translation. Mark chapter 13, verses 3 to 4 says this, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, directly opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew questioned him privately. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall the sign be when all of these things shall be completed? Again, my translation. Luke 21.7's account says this, And they questioned him, saying, Master, when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things come to pass? Jerusalem was really crowded every Passover. There were probably many other people camped on the Mount of Olives that night. For all we know, Jesus may have been talking to and teaching others besides his closest twelve disciples. But now four of his disciples wanted his, quote, private, unquote, attention. They came to him alone. In the book of Mark, we learn the names of the specific disciples that were interested in getting some answers. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. The documentation varies a little between the three different gospel accounts about the exact questions the disciples asked Jesus. Different commentaries come up with different numbers of questions asked, depending on how the questions are divided up. Some say two are asked, some say three. When I combine all three gospels, I come up with the following four questions. The first one, when will these things happen? Second one, what will be the sign that these things are about to happen? Third one, what will be the sign of your coming and the presence back on the earth? And the final one, what will be the sign of the end of the age? These things, being plural things, that the books of Mark and Luke refer to imply that it's more than only the stones of the temple being knocked over that they're inquiring about. In light of Matthew's record of the questions, we can assume that, quote, these things, unquote, have to do with the events associated with the second coming of Christ. 
the sign of your coming and the end of the age, is how it puts it. When will these things happen? It seems clear that the author of Matthew 24, being Matthew, wants us to associate the statement that Jesus just made in verse 2 regarding the destruction of the temple with this question. It also seems clear that the disciples, right or wrong, were linking the second coming and the end of the age together with the destruction of the temple. That's important. Mark specifically uses the word all in asking the question regarding the time of the fulfillment. When will all of these things take place? Again, this is indicating that the events in question are all likely linked together. Not long before this, Jesus had informed the disciples that he'd one day come with power and authority. This conversation was recorded in Matthew chapter 16. There, we read that Jesus had just asked his disciples a question regarding who people said that he was. Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus then began to tell the disciples what was in store. This is from Matthew 16:21. From that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. After Peter swears that he will not allow his master to be treated in such a way, Jesus tells the disciples the rest of the story. This is Matthew 16, 27-28. For the Son of Man shall come in in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, or truly I say unto you, There will be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. These mind-boggling statements had to have remained on the minds of the disciples. Peter had stated that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and Jesus confirmed it. Six days after Jesus broke this news to them, Peter, James, and John found themselves standing on the mountain with Jesus where they saw him undergo an amazing transition in his appearance. At the same time, Moses and Elijah appeared, and a cloud enveloped them. Then came a voice from heaven proclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God. After this overwhelming supernatural experience, Jesus reminded the three disciples again of what will soon happen to him. This is found in Matthew 17, verses 9. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. So, as the disciples now sat on the Mount of Olives that Tuesday evening before the Passover, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, but that he first must die and be raised from the dead before he could return in power and authority. They were naturally very curious about when Jesus would, quote, come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and would then pay back every man according to his deeds, unquote. The night they sat together on the Mount of Olives, they had to be associating Jesus returning in power and judgment with their master's prophecy about the destruction of the temple. This is important to get because some will try to tell you that the only question Jesus was answering here was, when would the temple be knocked over and not one stone left on another? And I believe in the minds of the disciple and Jesus, um, the 
subject they were addressing, or that Jesus would be addressing, was his second coming in judgment, uh, the end of the age, and the destruction of the temple. He tied those things all together. He was answering more than one question in his talk. Sometimes a single word can make a difference when translating scripture. Uh, More often than sometimes. It happens quite a bit. In the New Testament, I counted 12 different Greek words that were translated into the English word coming. In Matthew 24, 3, the disciples asked what the sign of Jesus' coming would be. I chose to translate the Greek word used in Matthew, parousia, as arrival and presence. Like many foreign language words, parousia does not have a good single word translation into English. Parousia, or parousia, depending on who it is pronouncing it, is a noun, not an action word, although it means to be actively present. Very important. The parousia of Christ represents an event, his second coming. It does not simply mean to travel from here to there, like an action word would convey. If the act of the relocation of Jesus is what the writer of Matthew would have wanted to convey, There are several other words that he could have used that would have been better choices. So what difference does the definition of this word make? The difference is that if you use an action word, Jesus could still be on his way. For example, we could say, where's Jesus? The answer could be, he's coming, but he's not here yet. Using the word parousia means that the event is or will be in play. The event of his coming, parousia, will take place over an extended period of time. The parousia of Jesus packs a lot of meaning. Much will take place once he's returned. The event of his coming, the parousia, will include many sub-events, such as the signs in the heavens that precede him, the rapture of the church, the sealing of his faithful Jewish followers, Armageddon, and the defeat of the Antichrist. All of those things are included in his coming. After all the events associated with his return occur, we could still say to Jesus, your parousia, your coming or being here with us, has been really eventful. If the disciples were to have asked the same question in English they did of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, they may have phrased it this way. What will the sign be of your being present with us again on earth? and all that you will do once you are here. That's a a better way of getting at it. Otherwise, it could be, what's the sign of Santa Claus is coming? Uh, We might see a a red nose glowing in the sky, and we know he's coming, as opposed to the the sense of parousia. What it would mean is, well, uh, the signs will be that Santa comes down the chimney and spreads presents around and eats the milk and cookies, and then he goes back up the, the chimney. You know, those all would be involved in a parousia as opposed to just seeing a sign in the sky that Santa was coming. Uh, not to equate Santa with Jesus in any way, but I hope you get what I mean there. In Matthew 24, 3, the verse that we just got done or we're, we're in the middle of talking about, the King James Version of the Bible uses the term end of the world instead of the term completion of the age, as I translated it. Many other translations use the term end of the age. This is another case of many Greek words having more than one meaning. 
especially when you include the implied meanings. The meanings of many Greek words change according to the words they are grouped with, the context that they are in. In this case, the word with more than one meaning is the Greek word ion. It's the implied meaning of ion that the translators of the King James Version chose when they translated the word as world. Ion means age, or forever, or perpetuity of time, or eternity, depending on the other words that modify it and the context in which it's used. As we'll see in a later chapter, ion is used in more than one way within the Olivet Discourse. The word world, like the KJV uh, translates it, can imply the planet Earth. Since we know from other scripture that planet Earth will still exist after the return of Jesus, the phrase end of the world can cause some confusion. It will be not the end of the world. It will be the end or completion of this current age we are now living in. The world, the earth, will go on. What I'm referring to as an age in this case is uh, it began when Jesus left this earth and it will end when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on this earth. A big miraculous supernatural event will end this age and will begin the next. There are those who believe that our present planet will in fact be destroyed upon the return of Jesus. However, we know for many reasons found in Scripture that when Jesus returns, after it's subjected to the events associated with God pouring out his wrath on the inhabitants of the planet, the earth will be renewed and continue to exist for at least another thousand years before all things are, quote, made new, unquote, by Jesus. It will indeed be a different age, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, humans will still be considered young at the age of a hundred, and swords will be beaten into plows. The geography of the planet will change based on the judgments God will have carried out, but it will still be planet Earth, and King Jesus will be here in person to rule over it. What an exciting thing to look forward to that is. I'm sure you're going to be excited to know that I need to tell you another personal story now. I attended Buena Vista College, now university, in Storm Lake, Iowa, originally seeking a degree in music education. The city of Storm Lake is about 2,000 miles away from where I grew up in Oregon. Probably over half the students drove home each weekend and returned to school on Monday. I would see home about once during the school year, and that would just be at Christmas. So, let me ask you a question. In 1979, before the world of the internet, texting, and Facebook, what did a music student do to kill time on a cold October weekend night in Iowa when he, meaning me, should have been studying? Naturally, he and three musical friends found some flashlights, a long heavy string, and a couple rolls of aluminum foil, and headed for the cornfields to pretend they were a UFO. Isn't that what you would do? The plan was for the three of us to appear to be a craft of some sort that had landed in a cornfield. To further give the impression that whatever the, was in the field was not from around here, the last guy, uh, I'm going to call him Bob, <laughs> was completely covered in aluminum foil, 
complete with a cone-shaped head. Bob's part was to walk towards the road in a zombie-like fashion, way before zombies were cool, as soon as the light from the oncoming car started to reflect on his foil suit. Our deceptive plan worked perfectly for a while. As the first car approached, I switched on my flashlight and started swinging it in a great circle at the end of the string, taking care not to strike my two friends with it. Both of them were busy on either side of me, blinking on and off their red and green lights. We all felt greatly satisfied when we heard the oncoming car's engine start to slow, as if they were trying to make sense of what they were seeing out in the middle of the cornfield. Then, how elated we all became when we saw the light reflect off of the Tin Man, and the car's engine started racing as it sped away. Well, what could possibly go wrong, right? Well, let me tell you. After a couple more successful acts of giving some passing Iowans a story that they could tell their grandchildren about, the fourth car that came down the lonely highway kept slowing, when it should have sped back up, according to our plan. Then, it stopped and turned around. Well, I did the logical thing. I took off running as fast as I could, along with the rest of the flashlight squad. The last thing I remember was looking back and seeing the poor tin man, partially illuminated by the headlights of the stopped car, sprinting across the field towards us as fast as a foil-encumbered trumpet player could, aluminum foil flying off in all directions. With all the cell phone calls to 911 this type of thing would, have, would generate now, what we four idiots did 40 years ago would be hard to pull off, and I'm sure it'd be some sort of homeland security offense anyway. But as fun as it was then, and as fond as I am of the memory now at age 60, with the life experiences I've had, all I can think about are the liability aspects of it. What if we would have caused an accident, or someone would have had a heart attack? Or what if the corn farmer would have been on his sixth shot of whiskey and blasted the unidentified cornfield object full of 12-gauge shot? It's all fun until someone gets hurt. Although the deception we attempted to pull off was all in good fun, and probably a side effect of boredom, Jesus warned about an evil deception that will take many forms in order to mislead the elect of God. Deception will be, and is, used as a tool of Satan. We four music education majors put a half hour of thought into what we're going to do, and spend under five dollars to pull off our low-tech attempt at deception. Conversely, Satan has long been making his plans for at least thousands of years, and he has all the resources of the worldly system he commands to accomplish them. Before Jesus answered their questions directly regarding when the temple would fall and when he'd return in power, he gave the disciples a warning. He commanded them to be on guard for those that would attempt to mislead them and his future followers in years to come. He told them to watch for specific events that would be associated with his coming. He also warned them about some events that others would try to associate with his return that will not necessarily indicate that his return was near. Let's look at those scriptures now. This is Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered them, saying, Watch out that no one deceives you. Mark 13, 5 says, And Jesus began to say to them, Watch out, lest you be deceived. Luke 21, 8, 
the first part of it, puts it this way. And he said to them, Watch that you do not be deceived. Rather than jumping right into the answer, answering them directly, Jesus starts by commanding his disciples to be watchful. He knew that the circumstances and speculation revolving around his return to earth would be full of deceit. Watching in this context implies watching out for deception from others. His beginning admonition is not what to look for as a sign of his coming, but how to guard against deception by being watchful. The Greek word in the above verse, blepete, which the King James Version of the Bible translates as, take heed, I translate it as, watch out, and watch. It could also be translated as, beware, or observe and perceive. It implies being aware of what's going on in the world around you with understanding. Understanding that comes from watching with the worldview that a follower of Jesus is to have. A worldview which followers of Jesus develop as they study the Word of God and grow to know Him. The Greek word for deception is planetete. The King James Bible translates this word as deception, as I did. But the word could also be translated as being led astray, as in being led astray from the truth. Other ways this word has been translated is to roam or wonder or be seduced. To pull it all together, one could paraphrase Jesus' warning by saying, Be watchful of the world around you in light of Jesus' worldview, which is God's truth, so that no one will be able to seduce you into straying from that truth through their deceptions. A perfectly legitimate paraphrase. We're lied to and deceived every day. We're bombarded by deception in the media in order to get us to buy whatever they're selling. The news is slanted to convince us of points of view. Some forms of entertainment, specifically the theater and cinema, rely on deception. This is not necessarily a bad thing, so long as we understand that we are temporarily and voluntarily suspending reason and reality in favor of being deceived for a couple hours. We watch with wide eyes and tell ourselves it's okay to temporarily believe that cars can be transformed into giant robots or that there may be a zombie apocalypse one day. People voluntarily and temporarily suspend reason and reality. They allow themselves to be deceived by the media into believing that they need many different products that mankind did without the first several millennia of human history. It's dangerous when we suspend reason and reality and choose to believe lies because it suits our desires to do so. This can take the form of burying one's head in the sand. Kids do it when they hide under the covers from infamous boogeymen, and adults do it when they hear a grinding noise coming from under the hood of their car and choose to believe that whatever the sound is will just take care of itself. Sometimes we buy into deception because of a false narrative that better fits us. We want to believe it. This is a big problem today. How could anyone disagree with me and elect someone I don't want as president? There can't be any logic involved in that because I am right and secure in my logic. There must be some underlying answer, something more sinister in play. Politics becomes a problem in regards to deception and following Jesus when we confuse standing for Jesus with standing for various political ideals. 
One has already been deceived when this happens. Nothing makes a person more passionate than their religious beliefs. If I believe someone is taking away something that God has given me, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I may come out fighting. The problem is that I will have been deceived into feeling like I need to fight on behalf of God, because unless Thomas Jefferson was a prophet or the apostle of Jesus, God did not promise me those things. Those who signed on to the Declaration of Independence promised me those things. The God-given rights I have are whatever God's will has in store for me today. I pray His will includes life for me today, but having experienced two different heart attacks at this point and being shocked back to life during the last one, I gotta wonder if Thomas Jefferson just forgot to include a death exception clause. Deception can be subtle. It can come from anywhere and can covertly guide our lives. I've already talked quite a little bit about being watchful, but the concept of watchfulness cannot be overemphasized since it is a main and reoccurring theme in the Olivet Discourse. The type of watching the words in the Olivet Discourse imply are absolutely not the type of watching that takes place when you're vegging out in front of your television. When you passively watch television, your mind wanders from time to time, and sometimes you're not even sure what just happened on the show you're watching. To watch, as Jesus means it, is to be five cups of coffee awake and paying active attention to something that will be the most important event in history. I don't know if you've ever played the lottery or not. It's not important, but just imagine if you did. Um, I don't know how many numbers there are, like five or six numbers you got to match. Uh, let's say that you were... They're reading the numbers, and it's $850 million at stake, and the numbers are just like, well, the first one you've got it, the second one you've got it, the third one, the fourth one. I can't believe it. I've got five out of six numbers. How closely are you going to watch and listen for that last number to be read? It probably would make a big difference to you. That kind of watchfulness. Maybe that's a poor example. Uh, maybe it's not. Either way, Jesus has something to say about this kind of watchfulness later on in the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 13, verses 34 to 37. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Who should be watchful? Jesus clears up any confusion here about who should be watching for his return, when he said, And what I say to you, I say to all, watch, or stay awake. The type and tense of the word watch, or stay awake, Jesus uses in this passage, which is the word Gregorio, was in the present active imperative form. In other words, he was saying, do it now. Jesus was commanding all or everyone to be actively watching for the events that will precede his coming and the end of the age. Commands from Jesus in the New Testament do not get any stronger. During his Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave us a hint as to one of the reasons why his followers should be watching. 
This is from Luke 21, 36. Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Paul gives us a little further encouragement to watch and tells us that we don't have to be surprised and caught off guard by Christ's return in the very classic passage that many misuse to say that Jesus' return will in fact surprise everyone. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 and 6, 4, 2, 6. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. To be clear, this is the Apostle Paul saying that we who follow the Lord do not have to be surprised by Jesus' return sneaking up on us. This is exciting and good news. Those who heed Jesus' warning have the ability to see the signs coming, unlike non-believers, since those who are watchful and awake walk in the light. But remember, you can still stumble even when the lights are on and you're awake if you aren't paying attention to what's going on around you. Matthew 24, 24 says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Some may say that it's not possible for the elect, the chosen ones of Jesus, those that belong to Jesus, for them to be deceived where teaching about God is concerned. Yet, Jesus tells us during the Olivet Discourse that this type of deception is very possible. The people who say it's not possible may be confusing the issue of losing their salvation with the issue of being deceived. Millions of people who call themselves followers of Christ are currently being deceived when they buy into false doctrines. This deception within the church ranges from non-consequential to extremely serious issues. This form of deception has been going on since the first time Jesus came. For example, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians after they bought into the deception that it was necessary for them to be circumcised to be a Christian. This is after they had received specific instruction from Paul in person to the contrary. All the deceptive teaching about Jesus that mankind has added to God's truth since the Apostle Paul's day and what it means to follow Jesus can and does drive people away from Jesus, deafening their ears to the gospel. If you are truly saved or have been elected to be ransomed by Jesus from the grips of Satan, you cannot lose that salvation. However, even if you are saved, if you are not watching you can still be, and likely will be, deceived. There is so much more to being a follower of Christ than having your salvation in the bag. As Christ ones, living in a world of unbelievers, Jesus said we are to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In order to become wise, there is much work to be done. The type of wisdom that Jesus was talking about only comes with knowledge of His Word and understanding of that word. It's so important to know what the truth is. It's only by first knowing the truth that you can positively identify untruth or deception. 
Unless you're familiar with what God has to say about the end of the age, there's a good chance you'll be deceived if you're alive during that time. If you're a leader in your church, family, or another arena and you are deceived, you're a prime candidate for spreading the deception you encounter further. The solution for not being deceived is threefold watchfulness. First, gain biblical knowledge about what it is Jesus wants us to know, including the signs of his return. Secondly, stay awake and engaged in watching for deception. Finally, faithfully be about Jesus' business until the day you die or he returns. It may be true that some are more gifted than others in the interpretation of prophetic scriptures, just like some are gifted in many other areas like music, teaching, preaching, and evangelism. But even if we're not gifted in the area of music, should we still not praise God with all that's within us? Just because we're not all the late Billy Graham, should we not be able to present the simple gospel and tell others why and what we believe in? Likewise, every Christian should have a basic understanding of the end of the age. In the military, everyone's expected to be able to recognize the enemy and alert others when they see him approach. Even though everyone in the military has their own specific job to do, they all do their time standing watch. As soldiers of the cross, we too have our specific jobs to do according to our God-given gifts and talents, but we too are all called to stand watch and be on guard against deception at all times. That's it for now. Next time, we'll start off with Jesus' list of things that are not uniquely associated with his coming, that people often mistakenly cite as being signs of the end of the age. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.